0: ACNF has got a crushing headache. This week's podcast is brought to you by disconsolateness, a state or a spell of low spirits. You wake up in the morning, the alarm clock goes off, and you are in a state of disconsolateness, unabating, unrelenting.
1: I was like, no prompts. Like, what are what are the themes we're gonna explore here? Like, you know, I need some inspiration and motivation. And uh, Joe was like, I never had to tell my reporters that. They just <laughs> went out and wrote the story and weren't, uh, you know, too, um, I guess, moralizing about their own work.
0: Oh, hey, CNFers, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories, but then again, you knew that. I'm Brendan O'Meara. Awesome. Three, count them, three, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, people on the podcast today. We have the father-daughter combo of Lucy Sexton and Joe Sexton, and she calls him Joe. It's just a thing that they do. You, you'll read about in the piece. I don't bring it up in the podcast. I once started calling my dad Walter and the first time I did it he was like kind of gave me side eyes like I'll allow it I did it one more time and you and you could see the steam starting to come out of his nose and ears and I did it a third time and he lit into me he's like I am your father Lucy and Joe are on the show to talk about their atavist feature not just co-bylined Not just co-written, but more like a duet with individual voices braided together like a rope toy. Lucy was working on a documentary about the Iranian hostage situation following and during the Iranian revolution, the late 70s, early 80s. While at the same time, Joe, current day 2021, while on assignment in Libya, was taken hostage himself for several days. Yeah, I know. Pieces titled, Held Together, that at Consider subscribing. I don't get any kickbacks, so you know my recommendation is true, and my advocacy for everything that Sayward Darby and Jonah Ogles and the team behind every issue of blockbuster journalism that Adavis does it comes from a good place. While I have your undivided attention, I will be moving my newsletter already, oh my God, from Substack to Beehive. Uh, It's a more traditional newsletter delivery service. Listen, I don't trust Substack long-term. Maybe I'm just getting paranoid about social media in general, but think about it. When you sign up for something free, it's never free. I always get a bit weary, and I think they are, um, I, I don't think they're so different from other social media companies. And I suspect that if you keep offering a free product, like I do, and I wouldn't, uh, get people to upgrade for anything on on that platform. I, I suspect you're going to get squeezed out or strong-armed into some obscure corner of their sandbox, and they're going to just kind of bury you. And you guessed it, their algorithm is going to be doing that. And they're going to they're going to privilege the people who have paid things because paid subscribers, the commission off of that subsidizes what Substack does. So make sure you're heading over to Hey, for show notes, blog posts. So that's going to happen. It already has. I wrote one called How Not to Write a Book and to sign up for the Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. First of the month, no spam. You can't beat it. We're going to keep raging against the algorithm because that's just what we do. If you dig the show, you might want to consider sharing it with your various networks and the people you, you know who you know we'll get some value of it we still want to grow the pie and get the cnf and thing into the brains of other cnfers who need the juice and don't we all need the juice i have like a leaky bucket in my juice my juice bucket and sometimes i get a a a nice note from someone and it's nice it's nice you need the juice this podcast can provide juice the show's listenership i don't know sometimes sometimes it feels like it's going up and then other times it feels like it's fucking tanking i guess my charming personality might have overstayed its welcome in the podcast space we'll always take nice reviews on apple Podcasts, so the wayward cnf might say well shit i'll give that a shot uh oh 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 yeah and by the way deleted at brendan O'Mara twitter account see ya go, go away, son. I might delete the podcast one too, but then again, I might not. Like it's, it's kind of like a placeholder because sometimes you find contact information on X. Sorry, Twitter. It's X. Um, I don't see myself adding another social media account. I'm turning into something of a crank of late. like, I really feel like I'm just like folding in on myself in a lot of ways, but that's a good place from which to, to write a book. And I am writing a book, lest you forgot. But I don't think it matters, social media. And and watching people's cries for attention and trying to get that coveted attention and toehold so you have a platform through which you can be more attractive to sell your memoir or your essay collection or your biography or your work of narrative journalism. Uh, I get it, but I don't think it matters. I don't doesn't do anything for my mood. When I see people just like, they're doing this, and they're doing these videos, and uh, people who podcast are like, all right, now I guess a video's a thing, so I'm just going to be doing that now. And I I just, I'm not, I, I'm not on board. I have this, and this PR-40 microphone before me with this metal pot filter, a boom arm, Hindenburg, and your attention. This is what matters. And uh, the newsletter, which you can now sign up for at BrendonOmera.com. Hey, <laughs> I want to give a shout out. We got two new patrons, and anytime I get patrons on on the pod, I got, I got to I got to recognize you. I want to say big thanks to Simon Cole. I want to say thanks to Kim Costigan for upping her pledge, and I want to thank Jamie Curry who is on board now. Two from the UK. It's kind of crazy, you know. This is an international enterprise, CNF Pod. So, thanks to everyone there who decided to 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 join, join in our little podcast that could to throw a few bucks in the coffers to help it uh, to to help it live, and uh, and and for for Kim there for upping upping her pledge twenty five percent. That's pretty great. Shout out to Athletic Brewing, the best damn non-alcoholic beer out there. Not a paid plug, but I am a brand ambassador, as some of you know. And I want to celebrate this amazing product. so tasty. It's got, I hate the word mouthfeel. I, I hate it. But what's great about it is it doesn't taste like watered-down beer. It actually has that kind of, that, the, the, a richness that IPAs have mouthfeel. If you head to athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code brendano20 at checkout, you get a nice little discount on your first order. Free Wave is my favorite. I don't get any money and they are not an official sponsor of the podcast but I do get points towards swag or like t-shirts and uh, and, uh, and beer. I, I do have to pay for shipping but it but it's nice that I can accumulate points and get beer at a uh, get, redeem those points for beer and then pay $5 for shipping. And then I have uh, I have some libations that are lacking in what makes them libated. Give it a shot. All right, first off is Editor-in-Chief Sayward Darby. This is her final visit to the show for three months. The parent company of the Atavis mandates a three-month sabbatical once every five years, so I'm told. So she's been forced to take a quarter year off. Uh, for the type A mind, uh, I, I don't suspect it'll go well. I, I, I joked with her. I'm like, so you have like eleven weeks to to like decompress and then one to enjoy. And she, I think she laughed. Uh, so, but she might not have. She probably didn't. Uh, anyway, we start with Sayward, and I asked her what advice can you, you possibly give to an upstart journalist, given that the paths that got the elders to where they are don't really work anymore, Riff.
2: It's such a good question. And I actually was at a dinner the other night um, and there was this uh, lovely person who used to work at Lit Hub and now works at Brooklyn Museum where they're putting together a project of like an in-house magazine, basically. And we were talking about um, about being asked these, these types of questions. And I said, you know, I never really know what to say because what worked for me might not work now for anyone just because the world has changed. The industry has changed so much. Um, and I remember getting advice from, you know, people of Joe's generation who, you know, their advice was just kind of go and do, (laughs) um, which is not the easiest prospect now, um, financially and otherwise, but anyway, So this person I was talking to said, you know, I agree that it's really hard. And I, I too don't quite know what to say. And then they said, you know, what I try to focus on instead of, you know, here's how you get a foothold. Here is how you, you know, start making money. We talk more, she tries to talk more about like what principles do you think are important to guide any any career, like whether, you know, you ultimately do find a foothold at one of the last standing newspapers, or, you know, you're an independent blogger, or, you know, I don't know, you're doing, a, you're a freelance long-form journalist, or whatever, and um, talking about, like, what you have valued and what other people have taught you to value, because I think that those things are sort of immutable ultimately to like having a good career and being a good person. Um, and I'd never really thought about it that way. And I thought that was a really profound way of thinking about it. And I it made me think back on, you know, people who've been my mentors, teachers, guides, whether they realized they were those people or not. And I realized ultimately what I have taken away from them and then tried to pay forward and, you know, certainly apply every day in my own work is, you know, what I think is a good and right way of doing my job, um, and how to treat other people, how to treat the material, how to treat the work. And so I, I don't know if that's a cop out of an answer. But I think that, you know, on the one hand, things are constantly shifting and changing from a industry standpoint, but there are certain things that 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 i I don't think change and that anybody should try to apply so you know i mean something as basic as like don't be an asshole and don't work with assholes um Mm -hmm. if you can avoid it um or you know have respect for yourself and don't ever do work that is not compensated and protect people around you protect your sources um you know things i mean i could go on and on about this but it's funny you asked this because I've been now noodling on this question ever since I had this conversation with this very wise person <laughs> at this dinner party so so yeah I, I kind of think that's how I'm gonna start having those conversations um like I'm a bit of a of a beacon of doom and gloom I think sometimes where I'm like I don't know guys maybe media won't even exist in a few years um <laughs> uh, much less America like I'm that's kind of my my mindset a lot of the time. And I realize that's not a terribly helpful one as opposed to thinking the nuts and bolts kind of thinking from a macro perspective about the things that shouldn't change, um, uh, to make for a good career, to make for a better industry, um, that kind of thing. So yeah. I don't know if that is a good answer or a bad answer, but that's where I'm at.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, I think a lot of times we get really hung up on uh, the medium of it, you know, and the medium has always changed, but what hasn't changed are the skills of good reporting and journalism. It's just accuracy and the ethics of it. Just making sure you're a a solid interviewer and a solid writer and basic tenets uh, of research of which uh, even my research muscle isn't very good because Google makes has made us so lazy. (laughs) And it's like being able to track down things in a more analog way can get you some really rich stuff that a lot of other people are either ignorant to or lazy. And so it's, you know, those things, if you like those core skills, if those are solid, then you, I, I don't know if you'll be able to make a living, but at least what you do is going, going to be rock solid. And then, you know, if you focus on those skills, then maybe it does parlay into something that is more sustainable
2: those kinds of things, you know, skills. Um, because I do think we, as a society, as young people in a society, in this society, um, you know, often really prioritize, well, how, how can I put myself in a position to make money, which I mean, great, we all need to make money. But I think like, in some ways, like starting from the standpoint of like, how can I do my job well is, uh, and well can encompass a lot of different things. It can encompass, you know, research you're talking about, it can, you know, encompass particular skills um, within that, you know, writing, editing, whatever. But then also, like I said, sort of values, you know, being a good person, having principles that you stand by as a journalist, I don't know, learning from people that you respect, like all these different things. And, And I'm not trying to be too kumbaya about it. But I do think that you know, at the end of the day, you you have to be nimble, right? Like things are constantly shifting, you know, what worked even a year ago, five years ago, um, might not work now. And so you need to be light on your feet, you need to be willing to, you know, do what you, I, I think too, I guess what I'm, what I was about to say, and this is a better way of putting it is like, you know, I think that the, the line that the lines between like journalistic work and non journalistic work have changed a lot. Um, even just in the time that I've been a journalist, whereas once upon a time, it was like, well, if you step away from journalism to do something else, to make money, you can never come back kind of thing, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. and that's not, that's really not the case anymore. And like so many people now do all kinds of things on the side, um, or for periods of time to support, you know, what it is that they're passionate about, um, from a writing standpoint. And I think, you know, figuring out what makes you happy in that regard, or at least what makes you not unhappy (laughs) in that regard, um, you know, and willing to be, to be nimble and also hold on to, to whatever, you know, your values are. Um, I think that, I don't know that's, that's how, that's how I'm going to be shaping these conversations going forward, Brendan. And, uh, I'm going to get better at talking about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and not to belabor the point, but it is such a drag that, you know, you might have to, like, write for brands and do content marketing to subsidize journalism, you you know, your own journalism, whereas, like, here's this, this, this core, like, cornerstone of, like, a democracy of journalism, the fourth estate. It's basically built into the Bill of Rights, and yet it's still something that is not really sustainable, certainly these days to, like, make a living, just start at a newspaper and work your way up, you know, it just, and it's like, you see people getting laid off at ESPN, it's like, what other, what other industry, it's like, the more skilled and the better you are at your job, the more vulnerable you are to being laid off, it just, it is, that drives me insane, I can't, it just blows my mind.
2: Right, no, I I think that's absolutely, That's absolutely right. And it's very frustrating. And trust me, again, I'm mostly doom and gloom about this, but I try not to be doom and gloom with young people because we do need young people to, you know, uh, continue doing this work. And so,
0: um,
2: so yeah, you know, thinking through talking through experiences and, um, you know, talking about what it's okay to compromise and what it's not okay to compromise, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know, speaking, speaking less from a here's how you do it and more, uh, here, here are some, you know, bumpers, if you will, on, on the, on the bowling alley. (laughs) Yeah. Um, that, you know, are, are gonna be there no matter, or should be there no matter what, you know, like always, always join a union, um, (laughs) work for your union, like respect your union, you know, any, I, I think all of these, you know, things that, um, especially when you can feel a little out at sea as a young person trying to, figure out your way through a, you know, very turbulent industry, um, you know, having sort of these, these guideposts can be really helpful.
0: Nice. And, you know, with, and, and in this piece with the, for this month's out with, you know, Lucy and Joe, it's, uh, you know, when you just say that you're like, Oh, here's a code, by line. And you know you, you did that with uh you know Sean and Lee uh several several months ago they did this really rollicking piece uh, that basically took place in Germany and that had more of the the co byline thing where it did seem seamless two guys doing the work very sort of uniform in its telling but this is 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 more of a braided piece and so talk a little bit about the unique challenges to this piece given that it's not only co-byline but really uh, it's like two different essays braided together
2: yeah so the the origin of this story um kind of goes back a few years actually because joe has pitched the otavist a few times and um in one case, the story didn't work out because we had just run a very similar story, literally like right when he pitched (laughs) Um, that story. And he ended up writing it for Publica, where he worked at the time. And it was an amazing story. And then he pitched the story that eventually became his book because he was kind of, you know, working through what he wanted it to be. And he and I talked a little bit about it. And he said, you know, ultimately, I think this is a book. And in the course of that conversation, I remember this was May of 2021. He kind of went silent for a few weeks. And uh, I was like, oh, well, I don't know what's going on, but you know, he'll get back to me when he gets back to me. And then he sent me this email that said something like, you know, I'm back from this reporting trip to Libya. Things were crazy. I, I would have to go back and find the exact oh my um, God. language. but point being, it was incredibly like underplaying the situation in the, most, like, in, in the most insane way. I had no idea at the time what had happened because he wasn't really telling people. It wasn't really public information. Um, And then fast forward to late 2022, and he and I were both at the ceremony for the DART Awards for um, the coverage of trauma. The Atavist had won, um, and the Outlaw Ocean Project had, I can't remember if they were a runner-up, honorable mention, like whatever it was, for the work that Joe and and Ian and Pierre and uh, Mia had been doing in, in Libya. And he so he spoke on this panel and he talked about being taken hostage. And I was like, what? He got taken hostage. Like somehow I had just completely missed this. And then um, so we spoke afterward and he said, I'd love to talk to you at some point about pitching some ideas again. And then we had coffee a few months later. and He told me, he was like, I have this idea where my daughter, who happened to be working or producing a documentary about the Iran hostage crisis at the exact moment that I was taken hostage you know, we have this idea of maybe writing a piece together about that experience. And I was like, that sounds really fascinating. I, you know, would love to to hear more about it. And then, um, again, fast forward a few months, and uh, they actually sent a fully written draft. So it came in this braided form where it's like Lucy talking, Joe talking, Lucy talking, Joe talking. But I, I, there were a couple things I really liked about it. I mean, first of all, it felt like in some ways they were speaking to each other as much as they were speaking to the reader. And I thought that was really special. And then there are these really lovely, like literary moments of almost overlap in the piece where you realize like one of them is seeing something from their vantage and the other person is seeing it from their vantage. Um, and so there's repetition, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in the piece, but it works really well because you're actually seeing it from different sides. Um, and I thought that was really special. And then also just, I mean, there's the wild, you know, coincidence of what Lucy was doing workwise when her father was taken hostage. But then they have this, you know, really moving, complicated backstory as father and daughter. And and I think they do a really nice job of, you know, weaving that aspect of things into the story. And I'm trying to remember. I mean, you know. We, they they sent a fully written draft and I had some suggestions mostly for like the last, I would say third of it, um, you know, to, I think add a section each, um, and, uh, you know, divide some other things up just to kind of work on the rhythm as much as anything else. But I, I don't know, you know, we've never done a piece like this. Um, I think it works really well. Um, I think that the personal relationship is what makes it work really well, Um, and I'm excited for people to read it because I hadn't really thought about it until this moment, but you're absolutely right about sort of the generational difference. Um, and I think that, you know, they're each coming to this work from such different points in time. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there is something Joe worked at the New York Times for forever, um, worked at ProPublica, which is, you know, obviously an incredible organization and then kind of strikes out in the freelance world and, and I think there's something to be said for what this story tells us about the dangers of, I mean, it's dangerous to be a journalist, period, in a lot of the world. Um, but here, too, it's like, you know, you, you put together what is essentially a freelance outfit. Um, and, you know, when you're taken hostage, for instance, um, you don't necessarily have, um, um, you know, institutional backing protocols. There were protocols, but... Anyway, I don't I don't want to give too much away, and I'm rambling and not sounding terribly coherent. But mm-hmm. I think that there is sort of this like undercurrent in the story about the state of journalism and how it has shifted, and in some ways, like Joe and Lucy, like riding those currents um, together, uh, and in ways they they maybe didn't didn't expect. Um, and I think Joe especially does a really nice job of you know talking about how his career followed um, you know, something of a traditional newspaper path. Um, and then, you know, late in the game, relatively speaking, um, you know, he, he went off that path, um, and, you know, started trying, trying new things and and learned a lot in the process, um, to put it lightly. So yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's a really special, it's a really special piece. Um, and I think they did a really, really nice job with it and it's nice. Their, their writing styles are very, um, Complimentary. Like I don't think they're the same at all. Um, but they are uh they're very complimentary.
0: Yeah. And and just from your the editor side of your the table and the fact that they sent you something that was, I won't say fully formed, but definitely like a draft. Uh what you know, what challenges did that present you to make sure everything felt harmonious?
2: I wouldn't say challenges per se. They were easy to edit. I mean, they're both pros. Um, they like to be edited. um and so uh so i wouldn't say challenges exactly one of the things and this often happens when we have a more personal story you know i try to gauge what people's comfort level is digging into certain issues um because especially when somebody's like this is the story i want to tell if i as an editor see a dimension that i would really like to to flesh out more um, you know, I want to make sure that that's something the person is comfortable with. They seemed totally comfortable with it. Um, and actually one of the most helpful moments in the process was I talked to Lucy on the phone and, um, early on, uh, I, cause I know Joe, He and I've communicated many times, um, but I'd never met Lucy. And so she and I got on the phone. She wanted to talk about, um, some, some things related to the Iran hostage project, um, just to, you know, explain how she wanted to characterize it, etc. Anyway, um, and in the course of this, um, she ended up actually telling me various things that wound up in the story, you know, sort of stories about her childhood. There's this one incredible detail that comes up about how she got mad at Joe, the way he edited like a third grade homework assignment. (laughs) Um, And that ties into
0: the end of the piece too.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And so like, that was not originally in the piece. And it was one of those things, she's telling me this detail. And I said, I was like, that's credible. (laughs) And like a really like, fun, like only the child of a writer would have this experience. Um, And I think it said something about their relationship. It's not a challenge at all, but just kind of figuring out how to like, what's not there? And how do I find it? Um, And I'm sure there's more, of course, there's more, you know, they've lived long, rich lives, (laughs) you know, just having, posing questions to, with the with the knowledge that I don't actually know what the answers are. Um, you know, is there more we can say about this? Is there more we can say about this? What about an example from childhood that might you know, reflect this theme or whatever? Um, and so sort of asking these almost broad questions, not factual ones, right? Like I'm not asking, well, what, you know, when did this happen and why? <laughs> um, although there were certainly those types of questions as there always are in edits. It was more sort of, okay, let's think about this thematically and maybe dig into, you know, your biography and find something that might reflect that theme. Um, and that's a very different, you know, way of editing as opposed to, you know, I don't know, define what this means. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or, you know, can we timestamp this? Or, you know, have we thought about a kicker for this section? You know, like just very different kinds of um Almost sort of like personal psychological questions, um, but uh, but it's fun to work on those types of stories. Nice,
0: and it's been nice over the uh, over the years to see various uh, co bylined and co produced pieces. It was like Annalise and Zahara, you know, Lee and Sean, uh, you know, you and Ariel for the podcast, and now it's mm-hmm. like now like the father daughter combo of Joe and Lucy. So it's just it's it's really cool that how you've. Over the last couple of years, been able to showcase the different dynamism of uh, co-produced and co-bylined and co-written pieces. So uh, I'm excited for people to get to experience this kind of collaboration that you've been able to put together.
2: Yeah, no, and thank you for saying that because I do think those are all very different stories. Yeah, you know, very um, not just not just subject matter wise, but in terms of what does it mean for two people to be working on this, you know, like you, obviously, Sean and Lee's piece um, about Putin and um, his support of neo-Nazis <laughs> um, <laughs> in in Germany decades ago, uh, you know, that is a piece, it's seamless, right? There are two people writing it, but it is the same voice throughout, um, which is obviously, you know, its own kind of challenge. And here we have two voices that are very distinct because... They're, you know, each one writes a section um, and they go back and forth. But at the same time, these they are not actually separate stories, right? They are the same story woven together from different perspectives. And then you have, you know, Zahara and Annalise. And I think in that case, you have a writer and a videographer, like you have people working in sort of two different media to, uh, you know, convey a story. And then, I mean, the podcast was its own (laughs) Mm -hmm. sort of unusual um, situation, but you have, you know, Ariel kind of doing the the nitty gritty reporting, describing, and then I'm sort of doing like the high level, like, you know, reminders of history and, um, you know, not talking to people so much as like narrating something. And those are all, yeah, really, really different ways of, of doing a joint project. So, um, so yeah, I'm excited for people to read this one. I think it's really special if you are a father, if you are a daughter, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I can imagine how, how this story will, will feel really special.
0: Fantastic. Well, Sayward, as always, thanks for coming on and to kind of tease out this piece and to talk a little shop. So we're going to kick it over to Joe and Lucy now and uh, just uh, best of luck with your time off now going forward. Oh, <laughs>
2: thank you so much. I'll talk to you in November.
0: <laughs> That's cool. Enjoy your sabbatical, Sayward. My goodness. Uh, I hope you're able to relax, get some things done. Unplug, and I know she's she's traveling the world, and and uh, she's not a particularly f- fond fl- uh, let's just say uh, let me rephrase it she's not particularly fond of flying, but that doesn't stop her from gallivanting around the world, and she's gonna have a good time out there. I wish you the best, and we'll we'll see you in November. Next up, now batting. Lucy Sexton, who is a documentary filmmaker and writer, and Joe Sexton, who is Lucy's father, longtime sports writer and uh, worked on the Metro Desk at the New York Times for a bit, uh, freelancer these days. ProPublica was on a team that won the Pulitzer Prize uh, with ProPublica, and he wanted to test his mettle by working uh, by going, going overseas to work on uh, some important international reporting and really could not have gone worse i mean i guess it could have but it was it's about as bad as it gets and lucy and joe they write so wonderfully about it and it was in the end it, it was joe's idea to do this and uh, again yeah, we kind of we start uh, at, at the point of when he knew he was ready to to take this on like when you when you came back to the States after this horrible ordeal, like when did you know you were ready to write about it? I don't know. I, I, I think
3: actually, and I'm not trying to be cute here or whatever, but, you know, there's a scene at the end of the story where I joined Lucy at a screening for the HBO series Hostages and sitting in a, you know, in a theater with, you know, former hostages from Iran with, uh, I think, four different directors who worked on the series with, you know, former State Department officials who worked to free them. Or sitting there next to Lucy and the lights go down and you're about to see your child's, you know, work up there. You just, I think I just struck me like, we should tell our story. Um, it, it's, it's unusual. It could be interesting. And... You know, it'll be, a, uh, I think, a rewarding act of uh, of trust between the two of us that will be good for us
0: in our lives together. And this is a completely different kind of braid. It is def- definitively two voices, two vantage points, two points of view. So, so for the pair of you, how did you come to this form of uh, of telling this this braided story?
3: Um, well, you know, the, uh, well, a couple of things. One is, you know, from the time I got back, uh, from Libya, I was, I was always pretty uncertain how much I wanted to write about what had happened, if anything, you know, we were mainly focused, uh, on publishing the story that ultimately ran in the New Yorker in November of 2021. And once that was done and, and for that piece, I, I actually asked not to be named in it, in part because uh, it, it just felt like a distraction to me, and and also my two youngest girls, who were then 11 or not yet 11, uh, I didn't want them to. I have never told them what happened, and so uh, I, I didn't want them to, you know, get asked by somebody's parent at a soccer game or something. So uh, I had put off the idea of even writing about it for a long time. That once uh, Lucy's documentary project was done and. Uh, we had gotten together in Manhattan for the sort of screening of the Hostages uh, series. Um, I thought, you know, maybe maybe I felt like I could write something about it. Um, and Lucy and I have always wanted to do a project together, whether that's work on a book or work on a documentary. Or So I, I proposed to Lucy, would she, you know, consider or be interested in trying to write a documentary? jointly write a a piece but I think it was clear to the both of us I'll let Lucy speak to it as well that you know the only way to do it would be to you know do it in kind of alternating chapters of of our own voices you know it would be hard to imagine it otherwise and and you know I I think we maybe we both recognize that it would be unusual and and maybe distinctive in some way but I'll let Lou talk about it too.
1: I think that's a good setup in terms of, like, where where we first started with the piece. Maybe, like, as you'll see in the piece, you know, we talk about maybe my stubbornness as, like, the child of a writer growing up being, like, my voice is important. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's still uh, stayed true. And so um, I think, one, just creatively, especially when you're writing with someone, uh, you know, in your, like, immediate family. I think it's always, like, best to try to respect each other's voices and writing styles and versions of the story. But I think another thing behind it was just, I think some of the strength of the story was just kind of in the the strange coincidence or confluence of different parts of our lives, be it professional life, personal life, uh, Joe's life, both career and personal. And so... Um, I feel like, you know, one of the kind of themes or or things that we explore in the story is just how do you balance between these different parts of yourselves or different parts of your story? So I think it also just made sense to keep it kind of like a, a back and forth passing of the baton.
0: And for those who who might listen to this before they read the piece. Why don't we do a little, a little background just an individual background of where your individual points of view are coming from with this piece. uh, And then that, that'll obviously make sense as they, as they begin to uh, fold in on one another and braid together.
1: Right. Joe, I'll let you start.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I have, uh, I've been, I'm now, you know, just turned 64. I've been a, newspaper man uh, my whole professional career, um, which is now uh, somewhat alarmingly uh, in excess of 40 years. Um, and, uh, you know, across those years at the New York Times and later at ProPublica, um, I was always both intrigued by the possibility of, of doing work overseas and also deeply uncertain myself, whether I really have the the guts and the stones to do that kind of work. And in uh, the spring of 2021, um, I was no longer associated with any big major news organization. I was on my own and reconnected with an old colleague from the Times, Ian Urbina, who had founded something called the Outlaw Ocean Project, which is sort of an investigative news site dedicated to covering all the mischief and mayhem and uh, marauding that goes on on the high seas around the world. And, you know, we had, we had a, a long friendship and professional relationship, and we each admired each other. And he was intrigued by whether I would kind of join up with his new outfit. And he had a reporting trip in mind, which was to do a story uh, sort of investigating the horrors being perpetrated against uh, African migrants trying to make their way to Europe. Um, and it was a very ambitious reporting uh, idea that we would first go to Libya and then on to Niger uh, and then maybe down into Guinea-Bissau to sort of trace the full uh, route of migrants trying to make their way to Europe and the, har- and the, and the terrible circumstances they could find themselves when they were uh, often captured and detained. And yeah. Libya was the first stop. So for me, you know, at almost 62 years old at that time, you know, it might have been one of my last chances at foreign correspondence or the chance to do that kind of work and, and maybe the chance uh, for me to prove something to myself. Um, so I said yes. And uh, soon enough, uh, was on a flight first to Amsterdam, then to Istanbul and on into Tripoli. And that's how I wound up there.
1: And I have had uh, spent almost like a decade overseas, uh, so kind of opposite uh, trajectory in terms of really throwing myself out there and uh, working across Southeast Asia and East Asia and then France and um, a million places uh, doing um, kind of freelance writing and journalism, um, making documentary films, opening a restaurant in Vietnam, doing some private intelligence work. I mean, I tried everything and ended up coming back to the United States in 2019 um, and was supposed to be going to law school and ended up deciding not to do that like a month before classes started and went back to full-time documentary filmmaking. And so I guess in by 2021, when our story kind of begins, uh, I had been working for the last Half year or more, on a documentary series, um, by Show of Force for HBO, exploring the Iranian hostage crisis that happened in nineteen seventy nine when um, the U.S. embassy, uh, was seized and taken hostage for, four hundred and forty four days, kind of as a result of the revolution that had happened and a lot of kind of deep questioning about Iran's relationship with the US. So I was busy kind of working as a story producer, researching it, finding characters, connecting with people around the globe um, who had stories to tell. And then we'd been filming a whole bunch. And that was kind of at the height of COVID. Um, So it was you know constant testing and doing all this type of stuff and Joe reached out to me and was like hey I'm going to Libya soon and I need to get this done and that done and you've been overseas and um, so I kind of got enlisted to help him out and yeah that's kind of how the story begins, I guess.
0: Yeah, and not to derail the conversation too much, but I, ha- I have to ask uh, the this restaurant you <laughs> opened up in Vietnam. Like what was, uh, what did you serve? Oh
1: gosh. <laughs> um, I think with all restaurants, there's kind of like a refining of the concept, but we first started as a Korean American dessert parlor. <laughs> so um, okay. my uh, boyfriend at the time was a Korean a guy who had moved to Vietnam and had helped open up a couple of Korean um, ice cream. They have a particular type of ice cream called bingsu, uh, which is like a shaved milk ice cream. And it's very popular across Southeast Asia. And so he was like, I want to make one of my own. And then, of course, I was like, well, let's add some like root beer floats and waffles with ice cream and... Uh, The root beer floats were not popular in Vietnam. (laughs) They're like, what is root beer? Uh, (laughs) So it kind of like refined into more of just uh, a Korean dessert parlor.
0: And Joe, you were you know a sports writer for the New York Times for for a bit, and then you moved over to the the Metro desk when uh, when things were w- with your family at the time were such that moving over to the Metro allowed you to be able to raise your two older daughters at the at the time while while working at the Times. You know, and you and you talk about coming to foreign correspondence this uh, this thing to go overseas later in life. Maybe you can take us to the the headspace of that as this being something of uh, maybe a lot of reporters kind of a, a feather in the cap to see like you said. The, do you have the stones to yeah, do? Yeah, I mean,
3: you know, within the sort of uh, peculiar, you know, uh, distinctive hierarchy of the New York Times, working for the foreign desk was always, you know, sort of the the pinnacle, uh, and uh, it's where many of the uh, people who would go on to run the paper, you know, had made their bones and um, won their Pulitzers and whether that is, you know, Max Frankel or Joe Lelyveld or Bill Keller, who are all successive executive editors of the times. So the foreign desk was always, you know, uh, the place if you were particularly ambitious, uh, you know, you would, you would want to point yourself at. And, you know, having been a sports writer for a while at the Times, and then having been a metro reporter for a while at the Times, you know there was a chance for me to to go to the foreign desk. It wasn't a, a certainty, but there was there was an opening in the East Africa uh, bureau, which is based in Nairobi. The uh, there are certain you know foreign postings like Paris or you know Beijing, which have you know a kind of obvious cachet and appeal, and um, you know and, and you know, come with a relative sense of safety. Um, and then there are some really, you know, challenging postings. And East Africa would be among the most challenging. You know, I think you would be responsible for something like a dozen uh, East African countries, uh, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, you know, many of them, one more trouble than uh, the last. And so it, it would have been a handful. The, the first time the possibility came up, Lucy and her sister Jane, you know, were still in middle school themselves, I think. Yeah. It um, was, you know, the idea of living in an armed compound in Nairobi and, you know, roaming around <clears throat> these, you know, dozen East African countries didn't seem like a particularly prudent uh, thing to do or a fair thing to do uh, to the girls so that opportunity came and went you know so in 2021 when i i hooked up with ian urbina you know it, it was a chance to get a taste of it um ian and his uh nonprofit, uh news organization have done some of the most daring reporting you know on the planet uh you know chinese slave ships uh, you know piracy on the high seas you know been engaged in chases of you know, mass polluters around the Arctic Circle. You know, he's been to North Korean waters. Anyway, uh, a pretty intrepid and uh, and brave, uh, you know, reporter. And so the challenge, you know, the chance to just like get a, a, a sniff of that, a taste of that, you know, felt both appealing and scary. And for me, you know, amounted to a little bit of a, of a reckoning with my own sense of my, own personal courage or or lack of it
1: and to set the record straight i was all game to go (laughs) and i think i was seventh (laughs) going into eighth grade or something and i was already like researching schools that i could go to (laughs) i was like what high schools do they have in uh nairobi though i i feel like i remember it being south africa was the first johannesburg or something like that but i think that speaks to like i had that bug to like go overseas and um i enjoyed challenges quite a bit from a young age
0: yeah that's uh yeah that, that that's <laughs> wonderful and it's and and lucy like you you know the at least the journalism just through, through which I'm familiar with you now is like you've, you, your ma- medium is documentary film and, you know, the, and this piece proves how, what a wonderful writer you are as well. At what point did you realize that maybe, you know, uh, film was the medium that, uh, yeah, that, uh, that appealed to you if it, it, in if it in fact appeals to you more than any other sort of journalistic uh, spur.
1: Um, I mean, I fell into documentary film quite by accident. I was uh, like fresh out of Reed College and uh, had always planned to go to law school and want to become like a law professor. And I was um, just doing, you know, a little bit of research work and help for a former New York Times journalist, or I guess he was at the Times at the time but took a sabbatical to write a book. And he had made, a, his name's Tim Golden, and he had made a documentary with Alex Gibney called Taxi to the Dark Side. And so his offices were in Alex Gibney's Jigsaw Productions um, in New York. And I kind of got recruited into a series about the death penalty in America. Um, and so, yeah, I I was never like a big watcher of documentaries growing up but kind of fell into it and found it to be um, a really interesting form of writing because a lot of times you're writing with images but there's extensive like writing of treatments and scripts you know before you even go out and film which was really interesting but then I went out to Southeast Asia um, and also got kind of recruited into a two-year project um, that was a ProPublica project, actually. Um, And I was kind of contributing reporting and research from Vietnam. And then we made a documentary out of that for Frontline. And anyways, I I gave a real try at um, being like a print journalist, (laughs) um, and was trying to kind of, you know, report from overseas and from Vietnam, where like, um, you know, the a- there was no real, there's no AP there. There was no Reuters. It was kind of like a black hole <laughs> uh, to a certain extent. You know, freelance writing, like freelance journalism is pretty brutal. It's like 90% of the time writing pitches yeah. um, that, you know, don't even get a response from an editor. And then they want, you know, the entire piece to be delivered perfectly, uh, with images. And so it kind of was a, a bit of a jarring experience of like, I really want like a mentor. I want to learn how to tell stories better. Um, and documentary kind of was always there. So, and it's a very, very collaborative process. It takes like really like a village to make one hour of anything. So I really appreciate that kind of collaborative Aspect of uh, filmmaking,
0: yeah. And, and Joe, given that you know you you and Lucy are you know are, are journalists, but uh, you know bridged by like two distinctly different generations and ecosystems of journalism too. The way you came up is is uh is so so different than the way people are coming up in the last ten years, and certainly certainly now. And what what have been maybe some of the conversations you've had about? Uh, I, I, for lack of a better term, like advice to get, to get momentum in this career when it's so tumultuous to get a toehold.
3: Well, yeah. Although I have to say, I, you know, I, I think the young folks who are, you know, interested in uh, reporting uh, these days are much more <laughs> talented and skillful than you know uh, the people of my generation and. While there's, you know, obvious challenges to the industry of, you know, for-profit journalism these days, there also have been, you know, an abundance of, uh, uh, you know, of new creations and new ways of telling stories and new, you know, the Atavist itself is a, a, a prime example, right? Uh, an online magazine that does, you know, high-quality, you know, storytelling. Um, you know, places like that didn't exist, you know, when you were trying to get a job at who knows, you know, the Concord Monitor in, uh, in New Hampshire or, you know, the Roanoke paper in Virginia. I'm actually intimidated by the young people who want to get into the business now because they have skills in data in social media and technology and uh, language, you know. So, just i'm holding on by my fingertips at this point uh and you know they 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 have more to offer me than i have to offer them i think
0: i do love this one this one moment in the atavis piece that you wrote joe is uh uh you you wrote like when the times asked me to help conduct in-house seminars on street reporting i made a point of telling younger reporters that success is often determined before you get out the door If you're fatalistic about getting what you need, failure awaits. If you force yourself to believe that an improbable reporting coup could happen, often as not it does. Corny maybe, but also true, at least in my experience. Yeah, I mean,
3: you know, look, there are some, you know, eternal truths that, uh, you know, if you're going to be a good reporter are, you know, as applicable today as they were. You know, 50 years ago, but you know, there are all a whole lot of dirty little secrets in the world of journalism as well. And and one of them is that you know, if you're if you're sitting in a newsroom, and even a newsroom as accomplished and and you know, full of resources as the New York Times, and a big story breaks, there's more conflict in in people's heads than you might imagine about like, do I want in on this, or would I love this to this particular challenge to pass me by, right? Because, um, and so, you know, I can remember when the, um, the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City happened, it was a huge news event and the, new, and the entire newsroom was, you know, uh, in an uproar of, uh, of excitement and obligation and, and they were recruiting people, you know, to, to get on a plane. The publisher had commissioned his own private plane to fly people out to Oklahoma City. And, you know, all you had to do was put your hand up, and you could get to go. And there were fewer hands put up right away than, I think, uh, (laughs) our own mythology of uh, brave and intrepid and aggressive reporters uh, would lead us to believe. And uh, so... I, I think that advice I would give younger people back then about street reporting or whatever, it, it, there's something of the same element there, right? Is like, Hey, can you run out on this quadruple homicide in the Bronx, whatever tonight, uh, get us some, you know, victim material and, you know, see if you can find out more on the cop who was involved or, you know, you know, that's a, that's a daunting thing. And, you know, and to do it, you know, at a moment's notice and, you can go one of two ways. One is which you know, oh fuck, how how am I ever gonna get anything? I'm gonna this is gonna be, or like okay, strap it on, let's go. Um, you know, uh, I always find something, whatever. Hit, you know, get in your car and 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 get to the Bronx. But it's more conflicted than than, than I think uh, we'd like people to believe.
0: So so Lucy, when um uh, when you when you started on, on the on the out of this piece with Joe, how did the pro uh, let's go to, let's go to the, the pitch. How did the, how did the pitch look to this when you were looking to, you know, co-produce this, uh, this, uh, this piece?
1: I mean, I think um, it was, it was more Joe pitching the story idea to me uh, and being, you know, are you game to try this? And then I think it was first like, I don't, I, I was maybe a little more hesitant uh, about, you know, whether it would work or how much I had to say. Um, and so I think between Joe and I, we both felt like, well, one, we should, we should write this thing out first, the whole thing, and just see if there's something good there. I mean, the process was a little bit like, Joe was like, okay, great. Well, like you go right up. Your stuff, and I'll go write up my stuff, and we'll just send it to each other. And I was like, no prompts. Like, what are what are the themes we're gonna explore here? Like, you know, I need some inspiration and motivation. And uh, Joe was like, I never had to tell my reporters that; they just <laughs> went out and wrote the story and weren't, uh, you know, too. Um, I guess, moralizing about their own work um, before like going out and seeing what the story was. Uh, I was like, I'm not one of your reporters, but I'll try. (laughs) So um, (laughs) I went and just wrote up kind of a long personal story of my experience and tried to think about, you know, chapters or good places to stop. I think we had from the beginning kind of thought, we should try doing this kind of braided narrative. Um, I always love playing around with narrative, with structure, story structure. You know, I don't like starting at the very beginning and just going linear all the time. Um, I love having kind of Rashomon effect sometimes, you know, switching perspectives and telling the same story over again. Um, So I think, Uh, we were both very game from the beginning to um, see if we could do kind of a fun swapping of uh, voices um, in the piece. So yeah, we, I like wrote up a whole thing and sent it to Joe. I feel like Joe, I was always the first to deliver (laughs) the piece and then he would come back with like, okay, this is what I have. And uh, then we just kind of started shaping it and then, giving each other, you know, some notes on uh, where we could push things further. Um, for someone who's uh, used to relying upon visuals and audio uh, to sometimes really ground the story in the moment, um, my writing, I think, was a little bit less, like, immediate. And it was this moment at this time of day and uh, the cicadas and, all, you know, these like little details of of the immediate experience, I think was actually lacking from my writing in the beginning. So uh, Joe gave me some editorial <laughs> advice um, and yeah, we just kind of drafted it until we felt it was good enough to send out. And I think it was kind of, you know, the pitch was like, read this. And if you think it's good, <laughs> let's talk. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, I think actually it was, you know, it was uh, Lucy's first bit burst of, uh, of writing that persuaded me that the the story really might have promise. You know, it, it's actually was a ver- uh, an early version of what is the introductory sort of chapter of the piece that's in The Atavist. And she just struck a, you know, a very, I thought, uh, effective and, you know, conversational style of, um, you know, uh, that was, uh, you know, a little bit uh, playful and a little bit uh, uh, sarcastic and a little bit, uh, just a very good kind of scene setting. That really convinced me like, oh, this might actually work um, and be of interest to people. In many ways, I had the, the much easier writing assignment, right, I, you know, uh, four of us were abducted and held in, uh, in Libya. And all I really had to do was tell, you know, what, by definition, was a fairly, I think, unusual and compelling, uh, you know, sequence of, of terrible events, um, and you know, with a straight, you know, kind of narrative timeline. Um, so I, I definitely had the easier
0: assignment throughout. It, it, I think some people might argue that you had the far more difficult task because it was so, so traumatic on, on your end that you have to revisit those moments and to hear you call it like, uh, you're like I had the you know, I, had the, 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 less demanding assignment. It's like, there's a, maybe that was a way for you to de- detach a little bit, to, to make it a bit easier to, to approach. Yeah.
3: I mean, I, you know, my whole relationship to, you know, both the events in Libya as they happened, um, and You know and since has been you know has been one of relative you know calm both in the moment and and then afterward and um again i think you're probably right it's probably some kind of trick of the brain uh, or the heart to uh you know one initially get through some terrible events and then you know later on to process them and I hadn't told the story of what happened to many people prior to this. Uh, you know, um, I don't think I had even told it to Lucy. And you know, I, I was very I, to this moment, and we'll see how, what kind of reception the story gets. To this moment, it, it, it's 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 awkward. To will people read it and see it as like I don't know, self indulgent or self important, or or will they read it and you know, have just a, a, a human healthy reaction to, you know, a, a fairly remarkable story of dark coincidence and, you know, a kind of uh, imperfect but durable relationship between a father and a daughter. Um, I hope they do, but you're pretty self-conscious and uh, but now that we've <laughs> gone ahead and written 15,000 words or whatever, I think we made a commitment uh, <laughs> that, that we were going to be okay kind of uh, undressing ourselves a little bit.
1: I mean, I don't mean to speak for you, Joe, um, but at least my own experience as a writer, it's there's a difference between like writing something and then having it read by others. And I think for writers, you know, it writing is um, can be a very personal process of just like processing and thinking through a moment or trying to capture or understand your feelings at the time uh, regardless of whether it'll be read by others or not but that is a strong motivation and impetus and uh, almost inspiration for writing part of what was hard for me writing this was like, how do I make, make a story in which every day I'm spending 18 hours or 16 hours uh, working religiously on a job that I'm doing that kind of like doesn't have that much to do with Joe's story? Um, I don't know how to make like 16 hour, uh, you know, shoot days interesting <laughs> to others. There, there wasn't a lot of time for me to process anything or even feel much of anything and um, And I think kind of as a as a producer and as somebody who's done uh, a lot of work overseas in um, kind of challenging situations, you know, you kind of go into work mode and like, how do I solve this and take care of things? And, you know, I was like, I don't know how interested readers will be. And hearing me be like okay so i spent 16 hours that day <laughs> um you know moving cameras around and tell it, you know getting crew to do this and and then for like you know an hour and a half at night you know at 3 a.m in the hotel finally thinking about what joe needed and and what i could do and all of that so that was kind of my challenge
0: yeah joe you had brought up this uh how how readers might ex- accept it and the, the the reaction on that end and there there are always a, a, I guess a couple approaches when you put out a, a piece of this nature or any nature where at one point maybe don't care what readers think about it and that but then there's another part like oh you want to like do do people like it do how how are they going to respond to this and uh, for you know for you as a, a writer. Do, to what extent do you put a lot of weight in just the reader reaction part of it just for, you know, to make sure you're on the right pace or for your ego satisfaction or do you not care at all?
3: Oh, I, I care more than it's even, you know, uh, safe to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I'd like my answer to be, you know, some tough guy answer like, I, I don't give a shit. You know, uh, I write my truth and whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I think... I'm hardly distinctive in this, but we might as well be honest. I think we all crave, you know, a response that, you know, that satisfies our, our vanity and, you know, uh, but that is, you know, that that's a substantial, and ever-present desire, um, and you know, I would have to be honest about that. That said, I think there are other simultaneous desires that you hold. Which is, you know, depending on the kind of piece you're doing, one that it will have some impact, particularly when you're telling other people's stories, um, that you do justice to those stories, and that, and, and that those people's truths are received by the reading public, um, in a way that, you know, uh, you know, is of some consequence. So there are both legitimate and, you know, less flattering desires you go into any kind of publication of a story, feeling. But, you know, the most honest answer is there's a whole lot of ego investment in it, whether you're you're fully honest with yourself or, you know, uh, with the public about that.
1: I feel like I'm maybe more conscientious than Joe. I'm always like, I just don't know how interesting this is going to be to other people. Um, Should we really write it? And I think Joe um, was really like, let's just give it a try. Maybe it's coming from the documentary film world um, and the entertainment world where a lot is put by like how many viewers did it have and how you know pacing is so important like did you lose people within the first five minutes I think there's a lot of concern with that within documentary I know it's there in writing but I don't know I just always think that my own story and life story is really not that compelling (laughs) Um, so Mm -hmm. I guess I was for this piece, particularly, um, was from the beginning a little concerned about whether it had any value or or interest to others, um, and I'm still nervous about it. It hasn't, you know, I don't know what the reaction is going to be, um, but I think one thing that felt um, that put those kind of fears uh, to rest a little bit was if we just stay true to our story um, and and to, you know, I think one of the more interesting and fruitful and evocative parts of this story is really the relationship between Joe and I and this father-daughter relationship. And so I think that's kind of, you know, while it's unique to us, those relationships are also universal. And so I think, you know, that got me a little bit over this hump of whether it's going to be interesting or compelling to others. So,
3: But just even to come at it from a, you know, just a purely clinical point of view, right? I mean, I've been doing this now for 40 years or whatever and become a pretty good judge of, you know, what's a good story. And, you know, for some of the stories that I've been a part of that have had, you know, the greatest, you know, uh, public reception you know they all have like uh, um, just a, almost a singular aspect of it that carries the the entire thing we did a story i was an editor on a story at the at pro publica called the unbelievable story of rape and you know wound up winning the pulitzer prize for explanatory reporting and became a netflix uh series eight part netflix series it was a real sensation but the the and it was you know uh but the the single fact at the heart of it that made it what it was was that a young woman had reported being raped, raped was disbelieved. That happens all the time, whatever. Not only was she disbelieved, but she was then prosecuted for having filed a false uh, complaint, and that moved it into you know in the America's ugly and you know seemingly endless variety of stories about rape and um, uh, and misconduct or like that put it in a different category. Um, I happen to write a story while at ProPublica about a cop who was fired, uh, from the force for his involvement in a fatal shooting of a young African-American kid. His fault was not that he shot the kid. He was fired for not having shot. Um, So, you know, again, in America's endless catalog of, you know, police killing stories that put it in a different category. This story for The Atavist has, you know, at its heart, a pretty extraordinary coincidence, right? That uh, a daughter is working on a series in which she's spending day after day talking to former hostages, former hostage takers, families of the those taken whatever about the experience of their loved one being held overseas and then her dad goes missing in the course of it and is held hostage for you know uh almost a week in libya like that just doesn't happen every day and um and putting all you know, concerns about our personal stories or what we do, like, that's a hook that's gonna work, I think, almost every time. That, that would be the kind of cynical clinical view of why, you know, you might believe that the people will be interested in the story. And, you know, whether the reaction is positive or negative, whether it gets, a, you know, a million reads or none, you know, I think it's been a good experience for Lucy and I to have done. And there's going to always be the satisfaction of that, um, whatever the public makes of it. Like all parent-child experiences, you know, it's a mix of tension and frustration and love and uh, trust. Um, And that's fundamentally, I think, a good thing for Lucy and I to have done together.
0: Yeah, you kind of, kind of took uh, took that question out of my mouth. I was gonna just say, that just as the the pair of you doing this, what you know, what you know, what the experience was like to be able to co author something of this nature, just as what it we speak nothing of writer writer, journalist to journalist, but father to daughter and daughter to father.
1: I mean, I I wonder if I scarred Joe <laughs> early on at. The- with that, you know, story of, um, in, I think it was third grade, his kind of like rewriting of, of editing of one of my homework <laughs> pieces, and me being, I think it was quite a, a, a disagreement, verbal blow up or something, uh, and I was like, you're not helping with anything ever again, so uh, maybe I've scarred him in that way. But um, I think he was pretty insistent upon me writing this thing, my sections kind of on my own and not over editing me, which uh, it sometimes I was like, I want more, like give, give me more, give me more um, feelings or material uh, themes, concepts, like whatever to work with. And so it was sometimes kind of like brutal to really just like sit down and like, make myself write this thing but uh, I think in the end I really appreciated uh, that you know I think he really does respect my writing and my voice and and so I think in that way we're pretty good collaborators Um, and you know when I was off in Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia and uh, whatnot writing you know freelance stories for you know vice or all all these different publications and didn't have really much of an editor I always turned to Joe <laughs> and was like hey can you take a look at this and so I think we have kind of developed a kind of like also more professional relationship when it comes to that and yet you know of course we have like those father daughter moments or those moments you have with close family members where you're like, you are so annoying right now. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the good thing about families, it's like really hard to shake them. Uh, so I think we allow for each other to like have our moments of annoyance and, uh, and move forward. And, you know, it kind of like just is part of the whole thing. Um, so I think it's been a great experience.
3: And, you know, whether it's a father-daughter, you know, writing tandem or just two journalists, you know, uh, trying to co-write a piece, whatever, you know, what they most need is not each other's feedback, but they need a, you know, a third party, independent. And, you know, Sayward was really, I think, awesome. She she was uh, taken by the story from the first time she read the first draft of it. Um, she had very clear ideas about uh, how it could be made better. You know, uh, she had specific requests of the two of us. And I think having, you know, that kind of uh, excited and enthusiastic referee, you know, step into it was was vital and, and, and will always be the case, you know, in any kind of, uh, you know, jointly written piece. So uh, I'm very grateful to her for her
0: work. You know, there's there's a scene in uh in the in the Godfather when like Don Cor- Corleone like he he r- realizes that Michael did something that pulls him into their underground and he there's a look of anguish on his face like oh my God like you were supposed to not be in this you were supposed to be the one who got out and I so so Joe, Lucy becomes a journalist. You're a journalist. Was there that moment of anguish? You're like, I thought I wanted better for you. I wanted. (laughs) But now you're you're in the you're in the mud of this journalistic career now.
3: Well, uh, first, (laughs) let me begin with a confession, which is despite, you know, having been a Brooklyn boy from my birth uh, and, you know, having kind of, you know, uh, fronted myself as some kind of, you know, Brooklyn tough guy or whatever. you know from back in the day I've never seen the godfather um uh
0: no. same same here <laughs> I've never seen the godfather
3: <laughs> so uh but I know enough about it to you know easily imagine the scene but and the answer is yes I, you know I Lucy's a you know a quite brilliant woman and I'm going to make her uncomfortable or whatever but you know as I say in the piece she's 10 times smarter than me um you know she wrote a, a fascinating uh thesis uh, paper when she graduated from Reed um, about the law. I'm the son of a lawyer. Uh, she's the granddaughter of a lawyer. I, you know, I had a rooting interest in her becoming, you know, young and uh, legal prodigy, you know, and eventual professor. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, I, that just because she really, you know, I think liked the subject of the law and. Um, and was recognized by professors and whatever as somebody with a distinct degree of promise to you know enrich that world um, so but to have instead entered the, the world of, of storytelling there's nothing wrong with that uh, like I said well I'll steal an old line Lucy's heard this a number of times but um, so one of my favorite colleagues at the New York Times was a big city columnist Jim Dwyer who had written a column for First Newsday and then the Daily News and then came to the New York Times. And he had a great line and I've, I've enjoyed stealing it since I heard it, which is that there are three great inextinguishable human desires. Uh, the need for food, the need for sex, and the need for stories. Helping satisfy that, you know, humankind's endless appetite and need for stories of all kinds, that's good, fun, noble, uh work that is its own kind of contribution to uh you know a better future so spending a life in the world of storytelling that's that's an okay outcome for my kid
0: Very nice. Well, as as I bring these conversations down for a landing, uh, I love asking the guests, and this is great, we have two, uh, for a recommendation of some kind for the listeners. And that can just be anything you're excited about. It could be reading, it could be movies, it could be a brand of socks you're particularly tickled about. So I'd extend that to the two of you. Like, what might you recommend to the listeners out there?
3: Oh, gosh. Well, I can go first if you want to buy time. Look, the, um, so, uh, and it's somewhat related to, so when I got back from, uh, the ordeal in, in Libya, it was a very strange kind of re-entry. And, uh, you know, one of the remarkable things was you actually didn't want to see your family right away. Um, that you would think that would be the most normal and instinctive reaction, but I actually didn't. I needed some kind of space to, you know, get my legs a little bit. And I watched a, a, a show that was done, I think it was four seasons, whatever. But it is, it's called Rectify, and you can find it on one of the streaming services. And it's, for me, was among the most profound uh, pieces of TV that i watch watched about the experience of you know, sort of wrongfully convicted uh, on death row, um, who then re-enter the world. Once their case is, you know, uh, overturned and vacated. Anyway, I, you know, maybe it was just something about my state of mind at the time, um, but I, I found it just an exquisite piece of work. So the show is called Rectify, and uh, I'd recommend that for for anyone, particularly those emerging from a Libyan jail cell. <laughs>
1: um i'm trying to think of something i mean two things come to mind one is recent one is not so recent but stays with me and is kind of relevant to writing this piece um the recent thing is uh i've i enjoy amtrak (laughs) trains in the summer and i know there's been a lot of horrible flights that i've been dealing with um and i know a lot of people are like you know, trying to get away in the summer. And I just have to say, Amtrak trains, they're so nice. (laughs) I would just suggest that as a life hack for the summer, avoiding the horrors of uh, flying right now. If we're wanting something more creative of a recommendation back in 2021, so at the, the year that this kind of story takes place with Joe and I, I watched um, one of my favorite, favorite documentary filmmakers, Robert Greene. He came out with a documentary on Netflix called Procession, and um, it's... You know, all of his work are, is kind of like hybrid between scripted and documentary and really complex, interesting story structure. And I remember watching it and being really inspired and I think maybe even kind of encouraged me in the writing with Joe uh, to lean into trying what could be a very difficult kind of narrative. So yeah, it's a great, great documentary. It's called Procession.
0: Robert Green oh fantastic well well it, Lucy and Joe this was so great to get to talk to you about this uh, this piece and your your approach to it and uh, uh, I just want to you know commend you on a job well done and thanks for coming on the show to talk about it and, uh, and some other things
1: it's been a thank, pleasure. You. thank you
0: Say a word Lucy and Joe nice great talk. Great chat! You can visit magazine.advest.com to read the piece and/or subscribe. Twenty-five bucks a year—not bad when you really think about it. How many things are you subscribed to? So many creators out there are asking you for a few bucks a month. Jeez, I, I do Patreon.com/CNFpod, uh, but so do like a million other people I know who are on Substack or. Or be it Ali Ward of Ologies, and she's on Patreon. And then there are people who haven't even really built an audience, and they start a newsletter, and they're like, "Already, hey, pay for this so I can do my work." And it's like they haven't done the hard work of building a base. Uh, I have; a f- they're going to be very disappointed. You know, if I upgraded to paid for everyone I read, I'd go bankrupt. I suspect you would too. So I wonder what makes you choose to pay into one versus another. It could be as simple as kindness, or it could be something else. I mean, they will always, this podcast will always come out on Fridays, whether people pay for it or not. I mean, you pay for it one way or another, be it time or money, and people who do both, awesome. High fives. I I, I hope to offer more one-on-one stuff, some FaceTime. I think that helps. I think people really enjoyed that. It's just a matter of finding something of an objective party who has talked to hundreds of people about doing this kind of thing and uh you know listening hearing out hearing you out maybe offer a little pointer here and there and you want to talk about a bargain you know if i had a cfo they'd be like you got to cut that shit out but i don't so here i am Uh, what are we going to talk about this week I, i i suppose i can talk about some book stuff i haven't talked about book stuff in a while and uh you know what I've been riffing on in my uh, journals, a la John Steinbeck, is uh, you know, what's been consuming my days of late is the feeling of, like, am, am I doing enough in a given day? And sometimes it just never feels like enough. I don't even know what that is. But I think I, this week especially, has been pretty good. I've spoken with, you know, long conversations with five people. And then when I say long conversations, it's like upwards of an hour or more. I usually cap it off at an hour and then want to circle back with people. And then uh, some found some other people, some intermediaries who put me in touch with people. So that's really good. You know, that's good. Now, I think that is enough. It's hard to tell sometimes. Like, I'm reaching the bottom of the bucket for sure of the written record on Prefontaine. I must be in the bottom quarter, if not lower. So that leaves me with tracking down more people to interview, interviewing past interviewees again, circling back for more detail, cleaning up the transcripts. Oh, gosh. I have more than, like, Sixty transcripts, probably pushing closer to seventy, and I think I need to clean up about forty of those. I mean, it's not as bad as actual transcribing, but it's still a slog. I also need to write. I've been uh, in a slump of late. uh, The and uh, haven't had the momentum, and I need to lay down more road. Find out where those potholes are. You know, find out what feels thin. You know, when I when I know maybe a particular. Area could benefit from some more bulking. You want to know these shortcomings when you're like eight and a half to six months from deadline versus like one month. Be like, oh shit, I gotta circle back to thirty people because this feels bad, and I've only got a month to do it. I ugh, don't want to do that. I've written probably a neighborhood of ten thousand words, so that's not terrible, but we gotta kind of gotta to start to hustle. In terms of the story, I really think the best tool is a timeline. You know, mine isn't as fleshed out as I would like it to be. So I need to really comb through my omnibus like, omnibus spreadsheet of more than a thousand articles that I have very detailed notes about. You know, just find those big beats. Ask myself, what do they mean? Why are they worth digging into deeper? Thinking about structure, too. I don't think I have the chops to pull off what I really want to do but it's to treat this book like the Last Dance docuseries on Michael Jordan. I think I cracked the code as to how I could do it, but I I don't know if it's smart. And I suspect my editor will be like, just uh, please don't. But that said, that Last Dance element, that's going to be a chapter unto itself. You know, that's sort of a big block through which you could hang, potentially hang... The entire narrative. It's going to be its own thing. So I think I can experiment by breaking it up into chunklets that float over the top of the entire Prefontaine story and uh, why he still matters, why he's still relevant today. You know, when those beats are measured out, you know, then the research and the reporting becomes far more targeted and far more efficient. Then you can go back to someone. And you just talk for maybe twenty minutes instead of two hours, and you just go right to the heart of what you want to get. So anyway, that that's that's kind of where we're getting, you know. And uh, as we're still trying to find new people, more people to talk to. But that's that's where we're at, and that's where the, that's where we're going. Okay, good. I ho- well, I hope I hope you're good. I I hope your writing's going well, and we've come to the end. So I hope. What you will do is stay wild, and if you can do, interview. See.